Pottercast with Brian Roberts in three, two, one. Welcome to another edition of the Pottercast. Sitting out here uh, with Brian Roberts. Brian, thanks for being on the Pottercast. No, thanks. Uh, appreciate you having me. Yeah, and so uh, I met Brian at GCU through GCU, where I meet so many people. Like mm-hmm. that's like GCU is like the connector of people. Like everybody either knows of it or they know somebody who works there. No, it's unbelievable, and and it's crazy too. Over the last what 10, 15 years, um, it's become this networking hub, which yeah. nobody would have said that. I mean, the school was founded in 1949. Nobody would have ever said that right. about that university for its first 50 years, I guess. Um, oh, yeah. Right? For sure. I mean, it was a great college, but not what it is today. Unbelievable. Everybody's got a connection to GCU now um, that, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I, and I went there back when yeah. it was great. And in there, you could really connect easily to everybody there because there was 1,200 people there yeah. and 600 lived on campus. So some of my best friends to this day are that. But yeah, you you would go places. And at the time it was GCC, nobody had heard of you. No. Are you at the Grand Canyon? Did you take a donkey to get down there? Like they had no <laughs> idea. Some people knew about the baseball team because yeah. they were winning NAI championships. And then Westfall won the basketball NAI. But, yeah. but nobody knew now... Like, I'm on an airplane flying to Reno for a game, and a lady's like, hey, do you work with GCU? I'm like, yeah. She goes, do you know Cade Verdusco? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I broadcast the games. I went to college with his dad. Like, everybody knows it. Yeah. No, it's definitely – like, even me growing up in Kansas, I mean, I was a huge baseball fan. Yeah. I knew Grand Canyon. I mean, I knew t- I knew Tim Salmon went to school there. Mm-hmm. Um, the baseball program, you know, being a baseball guy, like, I, I knew of Grand Canyon. And then I also knew the basketball program as well. Um, because they had the NAIA tournament every year in Kansas City. Yeah, Kemper, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and Kansas has a huge sort of uh, – NAIA was sort of big. Emporia State, Fort Hay State, a lot of schools like that, really, really big um, programs in that at that level. Uh, and then having the championship every year at Kemper. Um, so I, I, I knew of Grand Canyon. Right. But it, it, in Phoenix, you know, I've lived here for 25 years, so few people – like would go west of central yep and so even if people knew of grand canyon they just hadn't been there um and so now though just with the growth and the popularity of the university and everything like you say everybody has a connection to it um so yeah it's pretty special what it's turned into yeah it's pretty pretty amazing i mean the the real amazing thing about how how you and i like our friends and still talk to each other is the fact that you grew up in lawrence kansas as a ku fan and I was raised to hate KU by my father. Yeah, likewise. I, and I'm, I'm raised to hate guy. Missouri, right? There you go. Well, it, I mean, well, people yeah. forget that. That was back when it was the Big Eight, and yeah. and you didn't root for Kansas and Missouri or KU or Nebraska. You just couldn't. No, no, that would be impossible. I mean, the crazy thing for me that I remember hearing about was, I mean, we grew up hating Norm Stewart, right? Yeah, and so Norm. Norm would come over. The story was he would park the bus on the Missouri side of, of Kansas City, <laughs> right? And then they would eat their meal. They would drive to Allen Fieldhouse, play the game, immediately get back in the bus, drive back to the Missouri side. That's where they would refuel the bus. They would get something to eat, and they would go back to Columbia. <laughs> like, he refused to spend <laughs> one penny in Kansas. Um, 
So no, it, it it's uh, people talk about the Michigan and Ohio State rivalry, you know, Arizona, Arizona State around here, great rivalries. But I always say like there's sort of some, it it just to me it just pales in comparison. Like the Kansas Missouri rivalry, oh. it goes back to the Civil War. It's like it's just like a. I mean, Quantrill burned down my town. <laughs> How could you get, I mean, you know, so yeah. it's, uh, no, there's so much history and it's, uh, it's just, it, it, I, I look back on it, you know, fondly, like you, there's so much passion in yeah. those rivalries and stuff. It's just a shame that it's not, uh, they're not in the same conference anymore. And to break oh, that up is just unbelievable, yeah. you know? So, um, it doesn't have as much play, I think, nat- nationwide, but when you grow up in that, environment it's yeah. intense well and i i remember asking my dad one time because i just grew up we hate kansas we hate the jayhawks yeah and one time when i got older i go i go why do we hate the jayhawks and he goes well <laughs> we just do and i was like okay good enough <laughs> for me do. you know i don't know what happened in the past yeah. but i i did always tell you guys too because you know there's other guys from you know missouri area and kansas city and that whole thing and ku fans at gcu and I'd always be like, man, you, Danny Manning ruined my childhood. We had <laughs> such a good team. We could never get over that hump. And Danny, people older now, they don't might even know who he is. He was a very good pro. But he was the best college basketball player in the game, hands down, when he played there. He was amazing. No, he, he, he was like the Michael Jordan of college basketball yeah. at that, at that we time. We couldn't beat him. He was probably bigger than Michael Jordan at that time, right? Yeah. That was kind of before – I mean, Michael, MJ, obviously – was great in North Carolina, was great in the pros and everything, but like Danny Manning was the guy. Um, but yeah, it, it was, and those rivalries, like I, I remember, you know, going to games, John Sonvold, Steve Stepanovich. Yeah. And, and here's how crazy it was too. At Allen Fieldhouse, this is what you could get away with back in the day. Uh, Stepanovich shot himself in the leg or something. Yep. The students brought like cap guns and were <laughs> shooting them off. During the game at Allen Fieldhouse, yeah. um, like you probably couldn't get away with that. Today. No, 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 no. Um, but yeah, no. All through those years, and then up through Anthony Peeler and and some yeah. of those players, it was um, fun. Those were fun games, and and all of the Big Eight was like that. I mean, oh, yeah. Billy Tubbs and Oklahoma Sooners. Um, so Iowa was State. down Oklahoma State. Iowa State. Yeah, yep. K Nebra- State. Nebraska was more of a. We never got into Kansas and Mizzou. Didn't have great football teams all the time, but the the, the basketball. You know, there, there was some great basketball in the Big Eight back then. Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, I mean, back in my heyday, like you know, the Danny Manning sort of era, where I was probably 15 years old, you mm-hmm. know, and just lo- loving everything about. I mean, just my life revolved around Kansas basketball. But they had Jeff Grayer was at I- oh, Iowa State, um, Mitch Richmond at K State, mm-hmm. um, and then you had you know Anthony Peeler and you know. Oh, I can't. They had some. I can't think of that, some of the other players in yeah. Missouri, but they had some studs there. Um, Derek Chivas. Yeah. Uh, Band-Aid Man. Band-Aid, yeah. Um, but and then Stacy King and Mookie Blaylock. Oh, that and team. All those guys. For Oklahoma, Oklahoma was crazy. Didn't Unbelievable. They have, that those years didn't they? Weren't they printed? They didn't have like two or three teams in the Final Four. A lot of times they would have Kansas and Oklahoma. Oh, I it remember was pretty, the one one year with Mookie. They they had, I think Kansas and Oklahoma were both in the. Well, that's the year we won the national championship. Yeah. That was 1988. 88. Where yeah. we, we went through and we exacted revenge against <laughs> uh, the final three schools we played, I think, were K-State, Duke, and Oklahoma, which had all beaten us earlier in, in that the regular season. season. Yeah. And so uh, that was very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's fun. Um, when Danny Manning, I missed mean, an older GSU story. When Dan Marley was still the head coach, we went up and played when Danny Manning was at Tulsa. Yeah. And, Rex, yeah, and Rex Chapman was doing the the analyst. Yep. And so you had Dan, and I have a picture somewhere on my phone of Danny Manning, Dan Marley, and Rex Chapman all talking at midcourt. And they were the three of the top 15 draft picks in the 88 draft. And it was kind of a yep. surreal moment. They were all like, later in life pro careers doing their thing but they were all just hanging out in Tulsa talking I thought what in the world is that conversation like I mean yeah. holy mackerel yeah that's that's pretty cool I, <laughs> I was at that game I remember being there yeah. um I don't yeah I don't remember the three of them being together or that they were all in that same draft class but that's I don't, for me that's a special time I, yeah. I just loved those years and probably because of my age and stuff but yeah. I just the the big eight back then was so much fun yeah um yeah. Well, that's one of the interesting things. I mean, we could talk about more stuff, but the conference realignment and everything, I get it. It makes sense financially, TV, all of that stuff. But when, you know, when Mizzou goes to the SEC, it's like, ah, come on, yeah. really? You know, I mean, some of these Pac-12 school, I mean, really? UCLA yeah. and USC are going to be in the Big Ten? Yeah. What in the world? You no, know? it's hard to wrap your head around it. And, and, you know, it's big money, it's big business, and a lot of it's about exposure. Um, and so, you know, I understand why it, why it happens, but... You lose some of the, I don't know, it just, it doesn't, the heart and soul of sort of like these rivalries that are sometimes a hundred years old, like yeah. KU and Missouri and to break those things up. And, you know, Nebraska was special. I mean, we had a special relationship with Nebraska where they would come and beat us in football by a hundred and then we would go beat them <laughs> in basketball by a hundred. Right. Yeah. And so, but um, yeah, you just lose some of those relationships yeah. and you think about like, you know, what would KU do? Would KU break up with K-State? I mean, if KU got invited to the Big Ten? Yeah, um, probably, right? You know, I think at this point you probably have to. I just think you can't get left behind. you got to stay yeah. uh, up to date on all of that movement. And, you you know, if you're, if you're forward thinking at all, um, you, you got to stay on top of that and you got, you got to move because um, you could get left behind really quickly. Yeah, I mean, and, and I tell people all the time, I, go, I, I can be nostalgic and, 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 and enjoy the past a lot and still understand it makes sense. Like, I, it, it was crazy that growing up, if, if, if my Royals won 100, you know, 102 games, but another team in the West won 103, they weren't going anywhere. No. You know, it was, no. it was the East meets the West, and that's it. And, and we would always lose to the Yankees. Yep. It's better now. More teams make it. It's more exciting. There's more inner, inner, you know, interconference, interdivisional, interleague play. But I still miss those days. Those were just fun, you know. No, I do too. I, I think every single sport is evolving like that, and, and it's you know, I think, you know, in your in your mind, it's evolving for the better. But in yeah. your heart, you sort of miss those things. I mean, I, I <laughs> miss having the it. same uh, like. My entire life, I grew up. Frank White owned second base. Like he worked, his his office was second base, you know, at Kauffman Stadium. And so, like my entire childhood, I knew where Frank White was going to be in the summertime, <laughs> right. you know. And I knew Willie Wilson was going to be in center field. I knew George Brett was going to be at third base. I knew Dan Quisenberry was going to be coming out of the bullpen. Yep. Like you just knew they had a job, and they went to that same office for twenty years in a row. That just doesn't happen anymore. No. And I miss those things, but yeah. I also understand free agency and, and, and it's a business and players have rights. And so those things, I think like the playoff, uh, situation, um, even the all-star game, right. That yeah. used to be a big deal when I yeah. was growing up, you know, the American yeah. league and national, Huge. now you see American league and national league teams playing all the time. Um, and so 
some of those things make sense uh, financially. They make sense, you know, but they don't just from a, an emotional sort of, yeah. from a nostalgic standpoint, it, it just, you kind of miss those things. Yeah. Um, I miss the old NBA all-star game. Right. Um, those things are, you know, not as exciting as they used to be, um, to me. Um, right. but I don't know, probably sound like an old fogey, right? <laughs> I know. Now. I like the old guy, get off my lawn, kid. Yeah. I tell, you know, I travel with, for, for basketball, for G show, I travel with some younger guys, you know, and it's just funny, the differences and how they see things. And I'm like, you know, hearing them talk about what they love about the NBA, I'm like, you know what? This is their game now. Yeah. Um, I like, I enjoyed the game where. You went in the lane, man. You were coming out with stitches. And yes. Kevin Johnson kept going in the freaking lane. Yeah. And John Starks and Michael Jordan. And you were going to get beat up, but you still did it. And then when your guy came in the lane, though, we we're going to beat him up. I mean, I, I kind of miss those days, but I get it. There's a yeah. lot of athleticism that they were kind of mugging and and, and yeah. grabbing. And it's better now for the aesthetics of the game. But It is, and, and it protects the players. And you can yeah. understand why I think. I mean, even when you look at some of the old video clips of like guys going you oh. know, sliding in hard into second base. They were nowhere close to second. How McCray would be 10 <laughs> feet field. away from second base and he's just completely taken out, you know, yeah. Lou Whitaker. Uh, you know, there's one, there's a great video um, uh, that you can find on YouTube where it's George Brett sliding into third base. Craig, Craig Nettles. Takes Craig Nettles out. Favorite. They get up and just start throwing haymakers he at one another. Talk. And then... Nobody gets kicked out of the game. game. And then they just go back to playing. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's definitely. (laughs) George came in hot and Craig kind of gave him a shove and it was on. It was on. I mean, it's just haymakers galore. And the the fact that nobody gets kicked out of it. I mean, today you'd be kicked out for a month. There's a great one. I forget who it was. A pitcher threw high and tight to a guy. And so he dropped a bunt down the first base line to make the pitcher cover. Uh And the pitcher's like three feet from the line. And he just veers right off and just takes him out. I'm like. Yeah. Okay. It's that's not right. We don't want yeah. our kids doing that. It's bad for the game. But man, was it fun at the time. <laughs> oh my god. Well, and back then too, like if you didn't do something like that, then then you know you'd pay the price in the in yeah. the clubhouse later. Yeah. Like why aren't you standing up for your the guys? guy? Just why keep hitting you? you. Guy, keep throwing tight. Yeah. Now you you throw close to a guy and you get a warning. I mean, you don't even have to hit anybody. Yeah. And and then it's a warning to both benches. And yeah. the next time you even throw close to anybody, you're out of the game. So. <laughs> You you understand yeah. why it has to happen. I mean, they're trying to protect. I mean, the the product, the yeah. players. Um, but I kind of miss some of that stuff. Yeah, and there's a lot more money in it now. Um, oh, you know, so sure. so so you understand the protection. Like I'm sure that the Chicago Bulls brass cringed every time Michael went in the lane because it's like, man, if that guy goes out, we are done. That is our commodity right there. You know, hundred percent. And so you can't do that to Steph Curry, and you can't do that to Book, which is probably no. good. No. It's probably a good thing. And Jordan's one of those guys that, like, he, he's unbelievable, right? Because I could see him playing in today's Oh, NBA he could dominate and, and dominate, right? So, yeah, like, you know, he but he could also go in the lane and take it straight to Charles Oakley in the middle of the lane and take as much abuse as they're yeah. going to give him. And he's going to get right back up and still drop 40. Um like there's, an, I don't know that there's a lot of players that would cross over into, in you know, I mean, obviously they they they'd be good players yeah. and stuff like that, but it'd be interesting to see like how many players today that sort of benefit from this free flowing style and the lack of physicality. That I wonder if they would have been successful back in the seventies. With the physicality, 80s. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, how, mean, I mean, if you could push a Steph Curry around, I love Steph Curry. He's I mean, awesome. He's great. Yeah. But could, in the eighties, you know, would no. he have survived? 
as much punishment as Michael Jordan took? I don't know. John Starks or uh, Isaiah Thomas would have beat the tar out of him out on the perimeter. Oh, yeah. Imagine him playing against the Pistons. Yeah. And the thing back then, too, is, is you know, Chuck Daly would say, you know, he had the Jordan rules, right? If he drives, mm-hmm. you hit him. You yeah. hit him no matter what. Yeah. I don't care what happened. You can get kicked out of the game. Those are the Jordan rules. They would have the Curry rules. He'd be like, if he hits a three, I don't care. Run through him as he's in the air shooting his three and get a technical. Yeah. But make him make him think about that. Yeah. And so, yes, it's 100% a, a better game to showcase you, you, athleticism now. But can, it was kind of I mean, fun. What, I mean, the rule now, you, if you don't give him room to land. Yeah. And we know. see that liberally uh, dosed out by refs to, to certain players. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So I don't know. It's it, it's it. You understand the changes. It's definitely for the better. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's room in in uh, some entrepreneur to sort of come up with a, a no holds barred type of a basketball league or something like that. I don't know. Like there's a, some, a cross between the WWE. There's some and, league out there <laughs> that they do trampoline basketball. Oh, I've heard and that. you yeah. can take guys out. So you'll see a guy yes. timing it to go, and a guy just launches two trampolines away and just I've mashes him or yes. something. I have seen that. <laughs> I just caught it on YouTube or something. Well, it's funny too, Brian, because like we grew up, you know, similar times, like through those 80s with, uh, you said 88, you were 15, 16? I was born in 73. So yeah, I was 15 Okay, yeah. So old. I'm like four years older than you. So, so about the same time. But it's funny to think that, you know, we're talking like this. Our dads are probably like, like talking like, oh, Dick Butkus, he was so oh, much sure. tougher than any of these little yeah. wussies playing NFL today. Yeah. Even though you're seeing guys pick up Terry Bradshaw and drop him on his head, they're like, yeah. oh, the Butkus would have dropped him on his head, then kicked him or something, you yeah. know? <laughs> no, it, it happens like that. I mean, I think every generation, it'll be interesting. Like, what, what's it going to be like 20 years from now? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, um, but yeah, definitely every generation thinks, you know, probably their era was a lot tougher than the one <laughs> before. Right. So That's right. Yeah. So you grew up in, in Kansas and then walk us through, went to KU, Yep. decided so, you grew up wanting to be a lawyer your whole life, thinking <laughs> <laughs> like everybody, like I wanted to be insurance my whole life, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like what yeah, were you like as a like kid in, at KU, at Kansas, in Lawrence? Um, so no, uh, great. I mean, I had a great upbringing in Kansas. I love Lawrence, Kansas. I grew up basically just infatuated with baseball, all things sports, but baseball was my sport. So I just played sports all the time, you know, and when I... I I'm gonna sound, I'm, I'm sounding like an old <laughs> buddy, like a, an old man. But I, I got up in the morning. I didn't hang out in the house. I hung out outside, right? Yeah. So I, from the time I woke up, I ran out the front door and just I was gone and I was in the neighborhood and I was playing sports, riding bikes, doing whatever, you know. So whatever I could get my hands into. Um, but I, but I grew up playing baseball and ended up playing two years at a junior college there in, in just outside of Wichita, Which college, Butler s- County. Butler, yep. Yeah. So I played two years there. And saw the writing on the wall that this wasn't going to go anywhere. So rather than than playing at some smaller schools that I could have played at, I just went back to um, KU and um, got my undergraduate degree in business, and then immediately went into law school. So um, while I while I finished up my undergraduate degree, I worked at Allen Fieldhouse. My whole life had sort of revolved around KU basketball and Allen Fieldhouse and things like that. So I grew up as a ball boy uh, for KU basketball, um, and then when I um, when I was how long did that last? How, how old were you when you stopped being a ball boy? Um, like, did, I think I was 14. So I let you do it till you're about 13, 14. Yeah. I always said like, they, like I, they made me stop when I wasn't cute anymore. 
<laughs> they're like, you had puberty. And they're like, eee. Yeah, they're like, dude, that, that kid should not be a ball boy. Like, he's got a mustache. So. <laughs> Bringing the wife and kids around, still yeah. being a ball boy. Like, yeah, maybe not anymore. <laughs> there's some, uh, it's funny. We, there was a Sports Illustrated, um, there's this old Sports Illustrated where Mike Schmidt is on the cover and it goes through, he, it calls him the million dollar man. It was like the first year that like somebody had been paid a million bucks. And inside there, they, they had profiled the KU Oklahoma basketball game. And there's this shot where it's, um, I think it's Chu Kennedy and Greg Dryling, and they both, their legs are like kind of like V-shaped. Yeah. Underneath the basket are four, four ball boys. There's four of us sitting there like one, you know, one after another. You just see these four heads popping out. Because we would sit right underneath the basket, you know, yeah. on the goal. Um, so it was fun. So I grew up doing that. Yeah, yeah that for, you have that issue, right? What's that? You had that Sports Illustrated? I have you it somewhere around here. You got to have it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so wait a minute, let me go back to it. Right. Yeah. So was there one, you said you saw the writing on the wall, Butler County, yeah. that you weren't, was there one specific thing that you're like, okay, because I get this question all the time, right? Um, because I, I'm around sports. I never played at that level. I played high school, but I'm around athletes and every athlete I've ever met, because I get, I get kids at, at GCU, they, they're good players and they're like, ah, maybe I could go a little further. Maybe I could go pro. I think I'll just stop and start my life. And I always say, I've never met one athlete who who thinks they took off the spikes like too late. Like they all wish they had played one more year or stayed yeah. one more. But you do come to a point where you go, I, I, this, was there one specific thing that happened that you saw that writing on the wall? Or Yeah, I mean, it happens for everybody, obviously. At some point, you got to hang it up. I, I always envisioned myself as a Division One player. I, I, I believed that I was a Division One player and that I was going to – and, and I, I felt like I could play in the minor leagues. Like that, that was sort of my ambition. I had no – like I was sort of real – Realistic about like I, I don't think I'm a major league baseball player, but I played with a lot of guys that played minor league baseball, played Division One baseball, and I felt like I competed at that same level. And so, um, I was not getting playing time at Butler, mm. and I just and you know I I have my own sort of you know <laughs> sort of disagreements about kind sure. of playing time, like every player does. I felt like I should be playing more, and I wasn't, and so. Um, I, I I still think back about it and say like I could have played like I could have played at places like Flor- Fort Hayes State or mm-hmm. Fort Hayes State Baker University some of those smaller schools around Kansas which would have been a lot of fun um, but it, it, at that point in my life it, it you know at that level it's becoming more of a job so you're playing all summer you're playing fall ball you're doing you know winter workouts you're, then you're playing all spring you got to have all your coursework done by noon so you can get out to the batting cage you can be out there on the field and you're out on the field for four hours so. Um, and then you're taking bus trips everywhere and stuff like that. I, you know, when I said, saw the writing on the wall, like I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be a major league baseball player. I knew I like, maybe I'd have a shot at playing the minors, but I kind of also started to feel like, you know, I'm, you know, I, I started to think about law school at that point in time Mm, and how, how long is this going to set me back from sort of accomplishing what I think I'm really going to do in life. Um, and so while I enjoyed it and it was fun, it was kind of like, um, more, more, more real sort of expectations yeah. of, of kind of what, what things were going to be for me. So the hardest part for me was when I did hang it up and my friends were going on and playing, mm. um, and they were playing division one baseball and they were playing in the minor leagues. And I was really frustrated at that time because all my friends are still playing and I'm just going to school. Um, but I remember my dad telling me at the time, he was like, you know, but he's like, think of how much further ahead you are in your career and you're going to, you're going to be thankful that, um, that you're doing what you're doing. And he yeah. might've just been trying to make me feel better about it. But 
I was further ahead than those guys. I mean, most of those guys that did go on and play in the minors didn't finish their undergraduate degree. So they're 25 years old now, and they got to go back and finish a year or two worth of school. Uh, and then they got to figure out what they're doing with their career. At 25, I had graduated from law school, and I was starting working here at Snell, Wil Snell and Wilmer. So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a licensed attorney and practicing law at yeah. 25 years old. And a lot of these guys were kind of at that point in their life going back to school to finish up and get started and figure out what they wanted to do with the rest of their life. So, um, you know, you make those decisions and at 20 years old, I mean, you're making these decisions at 20 years old. You don't know <laughs> what things are going to turn out right. to be. And, um, and it was interesting. Like I loved watching some of my friends. I had a couple of my buddies that I played with at Butler ended up being first team all Americans at Texas tech and they, mm, were, wow. they were draft picks and, and played a few years in, in the minor leagues and did really well. Another buddy of mine was, at Butler was a, a undrafted free agent for the Phillies, you know, and mm -hmm. he, he just played one summer, you know, but he, he kind of lived what was sort of my dream, like the Bull Durham dream, right? Yeah. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to do anything. You get a small paycheck and you get to play with a wooden bat and you just travel around in some, um, you know, <laughs> random league yeah. in who knows where. Um, but uh, so, yeah, the, 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 it was, I was happy for them and I enjoyed following, following their careers. Um, but at some point, all of us have to make that decision, you know, and, and you either, you either make it for yourself or you get told. And, um, so that was just kind of where I was at at that point. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Yeah. I have a similar a buddy of mine, a Dr. Dan Mutton. He's been on the pot, Potter cast. Um, he has a similar story. He wanted to go to, he knew he wanted to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked about the amount of time and energy baseball. I mean, every sport is like that. Baseball is a little bit different because that routine, that monotony every day and that how long you do it every day. Because you got to take infield, you got to take outfield, you got to hit, you got to all that stuff. And at GCU at the time, I mean, they were a powerhouse NAI. And he and Tim Salmon were the only two freshmen to start on varsity. But his freshman year, he played through fall and his NAI. Mm -hmm. I think they played eighty-eight oh, games yeah, plus fall ball. Plus, he was playing JV. I think him and Tim might have played one hundred and thirty-four games yeah. as freshmen, and it was just like that's like double A. That's like a minor league. And he just was like, "I got to go somewhere else who doesn't take it this seriously, or else I'm never going to get my my stuff done to become a doctor." And he was able to play through four years, but he went to you know lesser programs. Uh, to get that done because he just, he just, I mean, at some point, if you want to get that advanced degree, it was just going to be too tough to get it done. Yeah. The crazy thing too, like when I played, I also did work study. Almost yeah. everybody on the team had, they called it work study <laughs> or you make like, you know, a little bit of money, but that meant you had to like prep the field. Yeah. <laughs> so like even after practice is over and then there's sort of this expectation, you're going to take extra ground balls. You're going to take extra, you know, um, cuts in the cage. You're going to do all these sort of extra things. But then when it's done too, you're, you're raking the, you know, you're raking the infield and you're cleaning up, you know, trash in the dugouts and you're yeah. doing all these sorts of things too. So we were playing baseball and also basically the groundskeepers. Groundskeepers, yeah, you know? right. And I think right. a lot of programs, probably Grand Canyon kind of the same way. It's like a lot of smaller programs, you know, there's nobody there taking care of this stuff. You're playing in these, you know, kind of yeah. old fields and you're taking care of stuff yourself and there's nobody in the stands. There's no energy, <laughs> right, there's no, right. you know, it's... It's, yeah. uh, it's all for the love of the game and for yeah. kind of what you're, you know, for what you might envision could happen, yeah. uh, you know, at some point later in your, in your life. So, um, yeah. I enjoyed those years. I mean, I, I, I do, and I'd still miss it. Um, but, uh, but things turned out okay. Yeah. yeah. What, why law school? Was it always, would you think about that all the time or when did that pop into your head? Uh, it's the dumbest thing. Like, <laughs> it, it, no, I, I, like 
I was good in school, but I was good in school because I just got things done. Like, yeah. I wasn't the smartest guy in the world, but I turned in my homework. I knew what needed to be done, and I got stuff. I got into law school because I read John Grisham's book, The Firm. Yeah. And I thought I wanted to be Mitch McDeer and be a tax <laughs> attorney. I had no idea what a lawyer did. I didn't even know what a lawyer did until I really started working at Snell and Wilmer. Yeah, because they don't teach you what a lawyer does in law school. No, you didn't know anything. <laughs> so I was just like, hey, this looks cool. Like, right, I'll go work for a law firm in New Orleans and work for the mafia and get chased around by FBI agents. I mean, I, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> Mary I, Jean Triplehorn, this will be cool. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I just wanted, like, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, yeah. I got my degree in business. Um, and so I, I, I always kind of had an entrepreneurial sort of spirit and I thought about maybe doing some stuff uh, on my own. But I honestly, I, didn't, I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I, I just, law school seemed like it'd be cool and fun and, and, um, and give me more time to figure out what I wanted to do. And I could hang out in Lawrence and go to the bars and just kind of mm-hmm. extend my childhood (laughs) so um yeah so that that's uh, nothing profound it was just that looking back i mean law seems like one of those degrees that you could be a lawyer at a firm but you don't have to it feels like that degree when people see that on your resume opens some doors and maybe teaches you a way of approaching things that's different than any other degree yeah, I mean, at the core, what you're doing is solving problems. I mean, most jobs are that, right? Yeah. You're just solving problems. And so what I've, what I've found, having my law degree gave me kind of an accelerated path to a seat at the table where, where big decisions were being made, right? You're quickly in the boardroom. You're quickly advising companies. Uh, you know, you're working directly with CEOs. The path that I chose where, where as a corporate lawyer, you're kind of the first call for most CEOs, you know, and you become kind of a business advisor as much as a lawyer and you're just a practical problem solver. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, without that, I think you're working the way your way up through some, you know, through an organization is, you know, and whatever you're doing, whether it's, you know, you're an engineer or you're a sales guy or whatever, and you're kind of working your way to the top of that organization versus, you know, when you're a lawyer, you're kind of, um, you kind of get a, l- a little bit of an accelerated path to the to the top of the food chain because you're developing a relationship directly with the CEO of yeah. these different organizations. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I worked at Snell for five years as a corporate lawyer, and I worked with you know some great companies and got at that time ninety eight to two thousand three is when I was there. It was done during the dot com boom, and mm. there was more work than we could handle. So I was I was like managing deals yeah. that I had no business managing, you know, but you kind of just throw, get thrown into the deep end of the pool and you just figure it out. There's just so much work going on and so much money flowing around at that, at that time. Um, were you, were you bummed when you got out to Snella Wilmer and realized they were not owned by the mafia? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Oh, dream crush. These guys are actually running a legitimate business. I definitely was. <laughs> I definitely was. It was, uh, it was a, a definitely like a, a, an eye opener. I got there. I remember my very first day. I worked for a guy. Uh, his name's Steve Pigeon. He works at DLA Piper now. Um, he's a very prominent um, attorney, uh, like unbelievable. One of the greatest guys to work for because he's just incredibly smart. He knows what he's doing and he's intense. And so I got there, and the very first day, I get a note and it says, "See Steve Pigeon." And, uh, <laughs> And so I, I don't know. I, I have no clue what I'm doing. I don't know. I, like, I'm not all the first. You haven't passed the bar yet, right? Or you have passed the bar? At that point, I had taken the bar, but I hadn't got my bar. Got your results. Okay. Back. Yeah. 
So I go into Steve's office and they're like, we're going to be working on a deal and you're going to be handling the schedules. And so I'm like, all right. And um, there's another attorney in there that I work very close, one of my closest friends, Michael Maladon. And I, we go back. He's like a, a couple years ahead of me. So I go back to our office. I'm like, what are schedules? <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, am I going to be like, okay, uh, at, at noon, we're going to have lunch. At, at one o'clock. Yeah, that's a schedule, like, right? I'm thinking about like yeah. a calendar, right? Like, a <laughs> I, I, I mean, I just knew nothing. Um, and so I think back, like, the learning curve was so steep, yeah. uh, you know, figuring that stuff out. But that's the best way to learn. You get just yeah. thrown right into the middle and you just sort of figure it out. And and um, and you work with people that, that, that know what they're doing and they kind of drive you. And, you know, kind of like having a personal trainer, you know, you they sort of drive you to do things you don't think you're capable of doing yourself. Yeah. Um, I'll so sound like the old, I'll sound like the old guy now. I feel like sometimes that, that is lost a little bit on, you know, on college and kids coming out now of it. And feel like stuff is more, more spoon fed, right? Do I feel like we kind of, like, I know so many kids, they graduate high school and college and, and even my kids are like, Oh, I got to get a job. I got to get a job. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they're like, what did you do? And you go, I honestly never thought about getting a job when I was in college. Yeah. I was just enjoy. I got a theater degree for crime and sakes. What kind of job am I going to get? You know? know yeah. Theater degree at Grand Canyon. Uh, yeah. First, first graduating class at Grand Canyon university. Over Claude, Claude Pinces was my, my director we'll directed me really? like 14. I did 14 or 15 shows over there. Wow. Yeah. It was great. Claude was, I mean, he was, he's a really great director and uh, it was just fun. There was, it was almost like a sports team because there was about 14 or 15 of us that were over there and we were getting theater. Most were theater education. And I was like the one, I was like, I don't want to teach it. I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And so we did all the shows together and stuff. And it was, it was a great experience. We got to be on the main stage, but, but yeah, they're like, you know, nowadays they were like, what were you thinking? What am I going to do after this? I go, no, I was going to go to LA and become Tom Cruise. You know, yeah, I, I don't right. know. And, and I went, it didn't work. And I was like, well, I guess I gotta do something else. And it just kind of, I don't know, just kind of that, that attitude just like, What's scheduling? I don't know. I'll figure it out. I mean, it yeah. can't be that hard. If this guy did it before me a year ago, I can figure it out, <laughs> you know? And I mean, I almost feel like sometimes it's, yeah. I don't know. It's probably, that's probably not fair to, to kids coming out these days, but well, I think the, the way the I, world's changed, I think, you know? you know, what's different now is, right, you have access to information. So you, you know, I heard this the other day, uh, you know, somebody was talking about how when they compared themselves to other people, they compared themselves to their, to the people they knew in their town. So you're mm, the pool yeah. of people that you were comparing yourself against were like, you know, for me, it's Ronnie Oshlager, <laughs> right? Who's this amazing athlete yeah. in Lawrence, Kansas. Like, um, like he's like the pinnacle of like athletes. Right. But now you can go, I mean, kids have access to information. They know who the best players are in the country. They see, video of you know players um all over the all over the world right you can instagram and facebook you think it's good or bad i mean i know it is what it is so we have to live with it but is it good or bad i think it's i think it makes it difficult you know i think because and i think all those things go that go along with social media where you know it's a different world today so um Obviously, there's benefits to it, but I think it creates a layer of pressure that we didn't have when we were kids because it was a little bit simpler, right? You're you're sort of like, I'm trying to compete to be the best baseball player in Lawrence, Kansas, right? And I know that there's players out there, but I can sort of, you know, not get depressed or can like continue on and be motivated and, and still have aspirations because I'm doing well and I'm progressing where I'm at. If I went on YouTube and I look at like the top 100, you know, 16 year old kids in the country and I'm seeing what they're doing. 
who knows? Maybe I'd have been like, I don't know. I can't compete with these guys. I'm 16 years That's old a good and point. I don't have a 40 inch yeah. vertical and I'm not, you know, 215 pounds and I'm not hitting 400 yard, you know, bombs, uh, or 400 foot bombs. Yeah. You know, so like maybe, um, maybe it does sort of like, Maybe puts more pressure on. It's yeah. almost like that thing. Ignorance is bliss, right? Like, yeah. like I was the best second baseman in Kearney, Missouri. Like, yep. so I thought, well, the world's my oyster, you know. Right. And then I came out for a visit to GCU because my 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 uncle was on the board of trustees, Uncle Don, and I, I met with Claude Pinsis and I read, and he's like, yeah, I'll give you a scholarship. I mean, that's how easy it was. I was yeah. like, wow, it must be pretty good. And I went go meet with Gil Stafford, and I watch him play, and I was like. I'm not playing on that team. I'm like, <laughs> I can't do anything those guys are doing. Yeah. You know, and Gil's like, well, we don't cut anybody, so you can walk on if you want. And I was like, that's not a ringing endorsement. Yeah. Yeah. That's you not know? Really what you want to hear so, from your coach. So that was my wake up call, but it didn't, it didn't discourage me. I was like, well, okay, that won't work, but I'll do this instead, you know? Yeah. That type of, uh, but so maybe that resilience, you have it, maybe. Maybe it's more like they say sometimes the rookies play better in the playoffs because they, they're too dumb to know how important it is, you know? Oh, that's why I said Lenny Dykstra was such a great player, right? Because he was yeah. too, dumb, too dumb to know any better. <laughs> See the ball, hit the ball, right? Like, don't It's an easy game. It. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I just, you know, it's just a different... I, I don't know if it's one's better or worse. I just yeah. think it's different these days. And yeah. Kids deal with different issues and, and social media has just brought a level of complexity that we didn't have to deal with. And, and so I don't know, but obviously there's, there's pros and cons. To it. Well, you think about it, it's true. It's funny. Cause like, yeah, I graduated college at GCU and I went out to LA, right. To seek my fame and fortune. Well, now looking back as a 50 plus year old guy, I see the guys who I had no idea that at the same time I was going out there, Matthew McConaughey was going out there and <laughs> Tom Cruise. And Brad, yeah. I mean, had I known that on video, I might've been like, dude, I ain't going out yeah, there. Like I, I thought I was a good looking dude. And then I saw Brad Pitt and I was like, I guess I'm not, you know? Yeah. And so that's but, a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. But the, but the other thing too, that, and, and I mean, there's a story in here too about how I ended up at Snell and Wilmer. So much of it's just putting yourself out there. Like just put your nose in the middle of something and yeah, see what happens. Just go for it. I, I, so I signed up, you know, they had these interview sheets at, at KU in the career services office. You could sign up to interview with different law firms. I was convinced I was going to end up going to a firm in Kansas City because I'm a Kansas kid and, you know, whatever. The, KU didn't recruit much outside of Kansas City, mm -hmm. Wichita, kind of that area. But they there was one up there from Phoenix, Arizona, Snell and Wilmer. I threw my name on the list. Lo and behold, they, they picked me to interview. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. But then uh, I also got picked by another law firm in Kansas City, a smaller law firm. And I thought, okay, I'm... And the interviews backed up to one another. Mm. I was afraid. They always ran behind. So I was afraid I was going to be late to the Kansas City one. I felt like I have a better shot at getting the Kansas City job. I'm going to go mark my name off of the Snell and Wilmer interview list. So I went in and I asked the career services person there. I'm like, can I just mark my name off? And she said, well, you know, you could, but you'd be taking a spot from somebody else that would have had an opportunity mm -hmm. to interview. So, you know, I'd prefer you didn't. I was like, fine. I won't, you know, I'll yeah. leave my name up on the list. Well, I ended up interviewing with Snell and Wilmer and I ended up getting a job and I ended up moving to Phoenix and I ended up here for the last 25 years. And, you know, and the interview with the Kansas city firm didn't go well and I didn't get an offer. So yeah. it's weird how those little things, like if she had just said, yeah, cross your name off the list, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been here. We wouldn't have met like yeah. none of this stuff would have happened. And so, but like just sort of putting your, like, who knows what would have happened? Like, you know, the right break, you meet the right person and you, in yeah. LA and you never know. So, um, 
I, I think, you know, at that point in your life, like, absolutely. Like, even if you had access to the information that you have today yeah. and you knew that all these studs were going out there, like, yeah. why not just stick your nose in it? You don't, you know, who knows? Yeah. Um, I wonder too, if it's like a different, I mean, maybe it's the information, maybe it's that stiff stuff too. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, through the Reagan eighties and it was proud to be an American. We're the best country in the world. And we're the best country because everybody can do whatever they want. Yeah. And, and, and if you work hard and you try, you can succeed. So, you know, people would ask me, well, what's your backup plan if you, if you, if you don't succeed out there? Cause the numbers, even then the odds are against oh, yeah. it. Like the odds are against you getting drafted and going and playing even minor league ball. But, yeah. but you're like, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'll just figure it out at the time. And I don't, it seems like not a lot of people are okay with figuring it out. You know, like they're like, well, if that doesn't work, what's my other plan? What's my plan for that? What's my plan? It's like, I know I kind of grew up in that era where it's just kind of like, yeah. I'm resilient. I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll find something. Yeah. We sort of get in our own way a little bit because we think that we can sort of dictate the outcomes. Um, when I think a lot of times just, just kind of just putting yourself out there and seeing where yeah. it goes, um, can be really beneficial, you know, but, but you got to take that first <laughs> step. You gotta, you know, you gotta be willing to sort of like make the effort, right. To put together a podcast and yeah. to do, I mean, there's probably a lot of people that think about, oh, I could do that, whatever, but one thing leads to another and you just don't end up doing it. And so I think like you're probably never fully prepared for whatever it is you're going to take on. Right. But just do it anyways. Right. Like, you know, I mean, within reason, right. Like don't yeah. try to jump a golf cart off a cliff yeah. or something. Well, but it's like, like when you get married and you'd ask people, Hey, when's the right time to have kids? And they go, if you wait for the right time, you're never going to have a kid because it's never the right time to have a kid. But then you do it and you figure it out and you go, man, I'm really glad we had a kid. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I think like, you know, marriage is a great example. I mean, it's like, you can't predict what that person's going to be like 25 40 years down the road, yeah. you're making a commitment to be with that person for the rest of your life. And you have no idea yeah. what they're going to be They don't know like. what you're going to be like. It's like. Exactly. But you take that leap, right? And yeah. you sort of figure things out. And and I think like, I just, like, I, I love that sort of mindset. Yeah. Right? Just just try it. Just just jump in the middle of it. Give something to try. You know, when I, when I was, I didn't know whether this would work out coming out to Phoenix. All I didn't know anybody here. I didn't know a single person in Phoenix. Really? Was like, well, wow. I, I don't know. But I'm, you know, I'm. 25 years old and yeah. I'm trying to, you know, like one of my professors, he's like, well, go, go do it for a couple of years and then sit underneath the cactus and <laughs> contemplate whether or not you made the right decision. And if you didn't move back to Kansas city, right? Like, so, uh, you know, I think just sort of that, you know, instead of trying to figure everything out and having everything sort of planned and thinking, you know, what's going to, you know, going to happen, right. The universe has sort of other ideas and God has a plan for all of us. Yeah. So you just, you know, I think you just, go for it, you know, sometimes. And I think that that's sort of underappreciated sometimes, just the ability to just kind of like take that step. If you're yeah. thinking about doing something and it's always been in the back of your mind, just do it, Yeah, you know? And entrepreneurs, so many entrepreneurs like end up that way too, you know? It's like, there's so many smarter people than me. They could have done this, but they didn't. They chose a path of nine to five, salary, W-2, you know, whatever. Right. So, um. You know, I have a lot of respect for a lot of these people that just they take those chances. And I think like the same thing for you, like going out and going to Hollywood, like a lot of people be like, oh, you should have known that was never going to work. Whatever. Like, no, right. no, no. Like, that's great. I'm, like, I hope my daughters do that. I hope they take the time to sort of take those chances. Right, right. There's a small sort of window of opportunity in your life before you got a mortgage and you got kids and you got responsibilities. Like, do that stuff. Do it when you have the chance. Yeah. Um, who knows what could happen, you know? 
So. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, I agree. So, so what are you, what are you doing these days? So, you we met at GCU. You were yep. at GCU for a while. You made a move there. Yep. What's what's the future hold for Brian <laughs> Brian Roberts? So, I'm sort of in that path where I guess maybe that's on my mind. I'm taking uh, a little bit of an entrepreneurial path. I'm I'm going into business with some friends of mine from back in Kansas. We're doing um, it's a litigation or it's a legal tech business um, called Array. Um, and so I'll be the chief legal officer for them, but also doing some business development and kind of leveraging my contacts in the industry to develop some business and, and, uh, and help grow this thing. So, um, I don't quite, you know, this is probably the most entrepreneurial thing I've ever done in my career, but it's, I'm at a sort of a stage on my, in my life where I can take that chance. Mm -hmm. I've had, you know, a little bit of success and I can kind of, you know, give this thing a shot. And so that's uh that's where i'm headed you know my whole career has been basically you know being the general counsel for this will be my fourth i think company that i've done that for um but this one will be way more entrepreneurial um so i'll be a partner in the business and get to help grow it and just kind of deal with whatever comes up and so i'm, I'm really excited about kind of this opportunity going forward um you know, but I also still lie awake and wonder, like, why, why did I leave Grand Canyon? Was that the right? <laughs> I love Grand Canyon so much. But I, my plan is still to be involved with Grand Canyon. Yeah. Um, and still. Well, I see it all the basketball games. see it at the baseball games every now and again. And Yeah. No, so I'll always be a part of Grand Canyon in some way or another. Yeah. Um, and and uh, those years were the best career, you know, years of my career. I mean, it was just that entrepreneurial spirit is so uh, dominant at Grand Canyon and it was so much fun. Um, and so even though it was a stable organization, it still had that sort of spirit of, you know, um, kind of, you could try new things. You could get involved in the Brian, Brian Mueller, who's just like unbelievable visionary, unbelievable businessman. Um, he's not afraid to take chances. And he, like he always said, like he, he sees, you know, so few people see the world for what it can be. They mm -hmm. see it for what it is today, and they put roadblocks and justify why they, those things can't happen. And he just doesn't do that, you know. Yeah, he he, he envisions what could be, and he just attacks it with a vengeance. Um, and he's obviously been incredibly successful as a result of it. That that mindset, and so it's so much fun to work around um, someone like that. And I miss that, um, but I'm hoping to sort of apply that kind of in my own. Thing, yeah. Um, now going forward. So. Yeah, I feel like I, I feel like um, entrepreneurs are different. Like I, I feel like I have an entrepreneurial bent, but I'm not an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So they're very different in that sense. And then there's different levels of entrepreneurs. Like I've been around Brian Mueller. Well, I mean, this is my 14th year calling games, and I knew the school before that. And I've really only probably gotten to know Brian better over the last five or six years. You know. Mm -hmm. But I've watched from afar, and 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 he, I mean, I think of him as like a Steve Jobs or like a an Elon Musk or no, a, I mean, the, creating something out of nothing. And yes, there was something there, but folks, it was a day or two away from being nothing, you know, at GCU. And to 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 sit in his office now and look out on that campus and go, "Did you really see this 15 yeah. years ago?" And he's like, "Maybe not exactly, but yeah, I kind of did." Yeah, yeah, and he'll, you know. Um, he, you know, he, he deflects a lot and gives credit to other people. He's a driving force behind that university, and he's just such an I mean, I hope he never listens to this because <laughs> I know he, he would probably not want to hear us talking about him. But, um, 
with such reverence. But um, he always says too, God had a plan and sort of how yeah. that all worked. But and 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 God did, and and I think that that sort of is his guiding light for a lot of things that he's done. But man, he he saw something in Grand Canyon that nobody else saw. Yeah, and he painted a picture for everybody, and he knows how to motivate. I mean. Part of that, I think, is from his background as a college basketball coach. Yeah. He knows how to motivate people and to get the most out of he, – he can get more out of someone than they think they can get out of themselves. And it just – he's he, he is the he is the most – he is the best entrepreneur that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> right. Because he is, you know, he's so modest. Uh, it's unbelievable, though. But he has – he. I mean, you think of the the value that he created when when they built University of Phoenix and University of Phoenix Online, and he was the architect behind that entire operation, and they grew that thing. I mean, I, I think there was like 400,000 students when he left there. I, I can't remember. Yeah, and people place. forget online education was not a thing. Not a thing. He It was, he, it was looked down upon as like, that's ridiculous. That's never going to be a thing. He did it. He did it, and the quality of the education was on par with any yeah. any other education you're going to get in the country. And so, you know, it's not it's not like no knock on University of Phoenix, but the, it's not a coincidence that after Brian left University of Phoenix yeah. and went to Grand Canyon, University of Phoenix declined, and Grand Canyon just went yeah. through the roof. Um, he, you know, he's he absolutely is on that Steve Jobs level. It, it's. The, his ability to to get the best out of people is, um, I've I've never been around. It's a like different that. it's a different thought process too. Maybe a little bit different way of seeing the world. Like I feel like because I if you want to listen, I I did a podcast with Brian. He talks about his his story and how he did it. But you know, there's there's a there's a similar worldview that he and I have, and and it sounds like you do too. Of you know Christian faith and and God creation and this is how you should live your life type of thing. But on other things, his thought process is just so different than mine. And the the opportunity that he's gracious enough to to sit down with me and just let me kind of be on the and you got to be on the inside of how that all operates and works. Like yeah. people like that are few and far between. And so every chance I get to spend time with them, I'm like, yeah, I want to be around people that think like that and have no limits. No. It- yeah, it, it, it was an absolute privilege to be with him, so to work so closely with him for for those ten years. Yeah. Um, because you just don't you just don't get those opportunities. I think the, those people are very very rare. Um, and he does he, he he has he. I would I would try to anticipate what the decision would be and try to think through it and write <laughs> and and he I would think right and he would he would say zig left. and you would zag and then I'd be like well is he really going to do it? And then like he would do it, you know? So, yeah. um, he would, you know, he would put mo- his money where his mouth is, you know, yeah, yeah. And he would just go for it. And so I'm like, are we really going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he did it. And so, um, and he would pull the organization with him, you know, it, it's one thing to sort of do your own thing and, and, you know, be able to sort of motivate yourself, I guess, or motivate a small group of people to do things. But I mean, Grand Canyon, you're, God, I don't know how many employees do they have now. I mean, 15,000 employees or something. I don't like even that. know. It have it's to be, yeah. It's a massive, Huge. massive organization. Yeah. And he has the ability to motivate every single one of them. Um, so that's a special talent. And yeah. to continue to grow, too, I mean, without getting all into the weeds, 
with every all the all the sort of headwinds that they have to deal with because of the you know the the structure of the university yeah um man like to survive and thrive <laughs> yeah in the face of all that adversity just tells you how amazing he is and what an incredible organization he built and how driven um everybody in that organization yeah. is to 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 create the best possible experience for those students and um so you know he he's an amazing guy it it was amazing to be around him and you know it, i i definitely took some things from him but like there's no way that you can emulate who he is he's he's a one of a kind yeah, I feel like I feel like a lot of it has to do with belief, right? And I people ask me all the time about what it, what it's. They ask you two things. They say, "Are are you, do you like the change at GCU from when you were there?" And I'm like, "I love it. Like mm-hmm. like I, I loved when I went there. It was great at the time. But I love everything about what it's become. It doesn't to me. It doesn't minimize what it was. It just expounds on it and makes it better. So I love it. And the second thing is, what's Brian really like? And I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, um, I feel like he really does believe that a private, affordable Christian education can change a student's life. And yep. that's why he's doing it. And you can take out all the, when it was a stock company and all the uh, change, you can take out everything else. Yeah. He firmly, I believe he goes to bed every night going, I think I can make a difference in a student and a family's life if they would just come here. No, not only does he believe it, but he's frustrated that there's not more of it. Yeah. Like, and and he, he, would, he would open the playbook to any, pre, any college president in the country. He, and he has He has. I, yeah, he he's has. met with... And they haven't followed the playbook. <laughs> I, I, no. And, but um, he absolutely, like, not only does he believe in it, but he's frustrated that there's not more of those that exist throughout the country where the university puts the student first in yeah. everything that they do. We're all there to serve the students from the administration, the the faculty, the staff. Everybody at that university is there to serve the student. They're the ones that are paying the the bills, <laughs> and so when you put your customer first and you think of a university as a business, um, it's amazing the, the decisions, you know, and, and how clear the decisions become. Yeah. And that's the way it should be on every college campus. It's, it's out of control. The cost of higher education is out of control. And that's a, to a detriment <sighs> of families, to students, to the country at large. Um, and there is absolutely, Grand Canyon has proven it, there is absolutely a way to do it uh, in an affordable way and yeah. make it affordable for the students. And so it, it's frustrating because you know it works and you know you can deliver an incredible experience for the student with an unbelievable education. Um, but other, but but for political reasons and for just sort of historical reasons, yeah. just, you know, you get Im- embedded in a certain way of thinking about um, colleges and universities and the whole, you know, U.S. News and World Report and the damage that that does to the the mindset and and the actions that university presidents take. Right. And they're just not benefiting students. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, he's amazing and Grand Canyon is amazing. And it's just, it's, it's a shame that we don't have more like it. And Brian would, would, would love to see, even if it had nothing to do with Grand Canyon, he would love to see more universities take that approach. Um, yeah. And he's, and like, he's, he's like, I'm an open door. Anybody that wants to come in, any college president in the country that wants to come in and, and pick my brain and learn from us, I'm happy to, happy to yeah. tell them how to do it. So, um, but some of that too is you, you know, 
you got to be, I think, a little bit of an entrepreneur. Uh, you got to have a university president that's a little bit of an entrepreneur and is willing to take some risk. Yeah, upset uh, the apple cart a little bit. Yeah. Not yeah. not follow the standard playbook of, oh, this guy gets this job because he's got the 20-year track record and the 10-year and the whatever. Yep. Like, no, this guy's got the skill set. This guy's good. I'm going to put him in this position. He'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll help. We'll surround him, and he'll do a good job at that. Yeah, I mean, the idea of putting a businessman in charge of a university, that's never been, you know, that's taboo, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, oh, people that hated industry, that. industry, like, that is very disruptive. Just that idea alone. I mean, could you imagine if you had put Steve Jobs as the president of Stanford, like mm -hmm. they probably, you, you they're probably as brilliant as he was and as innovative a thinker as he was, like they probably would have had a complete meltdown on that campus. He would have lasted like two meetings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they would have run him out of town. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of that, that expectation that you sort of grow up as a, as a member of the academy, you, you know, you become a professor, you teach, you become a dean, check all the boxes, the yeah. administrative infrastructure, and then you run it, run it. Well, you know, you know, for a lot of these university presidents, the first, I mean, they're running an operation that's a billion dollar operation. Yeah. And now for the first time in their career, they've, they're in charge of a PNL, a massive PNL, and they're dealing with logistical issues that, that, um, really determine the, you know, the success and failure of the university in terms of, you know, recruiting students and dealing with, um, the staff and dealing with employment issues and dealing with infrastructure, um, deferred maintenance, you know, there's, you know, public safety, like, mm -hmm. um, it, these are massive businesses at their core and, you know, make no mistake about it. They're, they're, they're it's big business and you need somebody that understands business to run a university campus yeah. to run it well. Um, and if you're just philosophical in your approach, and, you know, you could be brilliant at Russian studies, but um, I don't know that that qualifies you to run a campus. <laughs> but I think there's, you know. So 15th it, it, century business. You're a professor, so you're going to run a 21st century. <laughs> I mean, and, and yeah, you know, I know, right? And who pays the cost, right? Yeah. The students do. Yeah, the students. You know? And, and they have, like, they're, they're graduating so with massive debt. Massive amounts of massive. Debt. Even if they become doctors and lawyers and engineers, it's going to take them forever to pay it off. God forbid they become a teacher with two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of debt. It's crazy. It's insanity. Because and, and the other thing too that's crazy about it is it, the logistics of running a campus are so incredibly important because scheduling is like a big issue, right? Like how many students? Not only is it expensive, tuition, room, board, everything every year that you're there, but. Um, Grand Canyon has a philosophy of trying to get students to graduate with, within four years. Yeah. And so how many students are going for five or six years? So they're multiplying that thing, you know, even though it's expensive already and now they're adding, you know, the, Extra an additional years. 50% uh, in terms of time commitment to get it done. And that's two years less that you're actually yeah. in the workforce and you're earning and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, I could talk about higher ed. For no, I, it's, all, it's all stuff I learned. Working I know. Well, dude, we've gone over an hour or close to an hour. I know you got a hard stop. Um, I've appreciated the conversation. Um, good luck on your new future. I'm excited for it because it sounds like it's got some of what you've done, but also some entrepreneurial bent to it, and you're going to do some fun stuff there. Last thing before I let you go, though. Did you did you go to the Royals-Dimebacks game that Wednesday we were talking about? I did, yeah. What do you I think, of, what do you think of the Royals? We, we got a ways to go. 
you know, I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to the Royals. So Good, because I'm not. I still think we're going to be in the World Series this year. You know, I say that every year. And one of these years, you know, there's twice. Like seriously. 1985 and 2015, I was Every correct. 30 years like clockwork, dude. Every <laughs> exactly 30 years. So, so, so but, but, but with what you saw, like I told my buddy, I go, dude, we might not win 40 games this year. Like, ee. It's rough. It's rough. And the hard part, I think we talked about the other day, that's tough is with Bobby Witt Jr., you get these amazing um, players, and it's like by the time we're probably good again, he'll be a free agent. So what do you do in that situation? And when you're a small market team, you just don't have the same resources that some of the big markets do. It's it's tough. It's not like – I mean, obviously our other team, the Chiefs, they have uh, with with the the system they've set up in the NFL. I mean, we have the you know it's it's awesome because you you know like Patrick Mahomes is going to be a chief for his entire career. It's it, more likely than not. Yeah. I mean, you, obviously he could move on. Aaron Rodgers did, uh, but um, but the we're going to get we're going to get the the best ten years out of him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And in baseball, it's just a different structure. So yeah, yeah. It, it's. It's a little rough right now for the Royals, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I I hold out hope that we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get back there soon. <laughs> yeah, I was watching that game with my buddy, and I'm like going, I I you know I think the Diamondbacks have some nice young players too, and they're they're gonna be in the same situation, right? I mean, think about it. If they had a hat, Max Scherzer in their, is their starting as yeah. one of their ones, and Goldie was at first base with these young guys, they'd be right there in the thick of it. But they just they they decided they couldn't, and maybe they could they couldn't pay him, and they had to move on. And yeah. so is I mean, are they going to win anything before Corbin Carroll becomes a free agent? I I don't know, you know. I don't know, but I mean, baseball's so tough, and it, you know, pitching obviously is you know Huge. the currency of baseball, yeah. and so some you can you know a lot of it's keeping people healthy, sticking with people, being able to retain some of your best young, young talent, stuff like that. And, and, you know, um, it just, who knows? I don't know. But I think, I think the Diamondbacks have a bright future. They just need to be able to hold on to some of this and stick with it, yeah. you know, through those years. Um, that's what the Royals did when they built up their team and they, yeah. they drafted really 14 well. and 15. They stuck with those guys for a couple extra years, 14, 15 and 16. And then they added those pieces. They won two. Or they got to two. They won one, one. Yeah. And then they just added those yeah. couple of pieces at the end and, and that's what got it done. And so sometimes I think it's just sort of sticking with those guys through those learning years. Um, and then trying to find some creative way to, to hold on to them when they're kind of right in their prime. That, that you know, that 27, you know, 28, 29 years um, right. where they're established, they know what they're doing, and, and they can really perform. That, that's what's been hard, I think, from, for the small market teams is holding on to those guys after their first four or five years in the league. Right. Right. Well, as you mentioned, at least we got the Chiefs too. You got the Chiefs. <laughs> that makes things nice. And when you got, got Pat Mahomes, I'm so, I'm I'm so bad though. Like we went all those years with nothing, uh, or getting to the playoffs and not getting in. So I was one of those idiots. Was like, we should get rid of Schottenheimer. He can't win the big one. And then we do. And we don't. We don't even sniff the playoffs for like a decade. No, and then we get Vermeil. And then he leaves after a while. And so now we're back. And now I'm getting greedy. I'm like. We should already have three Super Bowls. This is ridiculous. How do we no. lose to the Tampa Bay? I know. Well, but, but when you have, like, when you go through those lean years, you appreciate how hard it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, don't waste these years. Like, take yeah. advantage of these opportunities when they're there because it just, it, it's, they're like once in a lifetime opportunities. So yeah. you don't want to see them squandered. Before we leave, too, yeah. I will tell you as an eternal optimist that, like, I, we're bringing in some great kids at Grand Canyon, and I think the future is really bright for Grand Canyon basketball too. I think Brian absolutely believes we can be a Final Four team, and I think that is definitely in the cards at some point for for Grand Canyon basketball. 
Um, it's going to be exciting to watch these guys and see what they can do. And yeah, you get a first, definitely. You get a, you get a front row seat. At front all row seat. Yeah, I'll be interested to see some of these new guys they're bringing. It's all you know with the with the with the NIL and the portal. It's interesting for a lot of teams. You know, the teams that are adding a piece or two because they have something established. That's different. But when you're adding half your team, you know, it takes a while to get going. How do they work in? How does it change? But you know, by the looks of some of the guys they've added already, you're like going, okay, those are some upgrades in the front court and yeah. you know, and Ray's great and Gabe's been playing great. So yeah, it's gonna be fun to see what they do. But you're right, it's it's fun to be on the inside and as you were too to to see those guys, see what Stankowitz built, what Wallace is still continuing, what Shannon Hayes has started in the last couple of years. Mark Mueller got uh the yeah. really their second championship but weren't eligible the first time, so their first yeah. championship, right? Yeah. Um and 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 Matt Worley going to the tournament for the first time in men's volleyball and I you know forget about what Chris uh, Sissel's doing with the women's soccer. I mean it's just there's a lot no, of fun stuff over the there. We're on a lot of these sports and we're going to bust it down and it's, yeah. it's going to happen and it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. I think what Wally's doing with with GC baseball is going to be great. Yeah. Um I love I you know I definitely want to see them in Omaha someday and that's absolutely <laughs> possible. I mean Yeah. This this is a this is a baseball mecca town. Yeah. So for kids that are interested in going to you know play baseball in college, like there's no better place to play than Grand Canyon. Hundred percent. It's gonna get there and it's gonna get there quick. Yeah. Um, but I think basketball too. Just with the with the commitment that the university has to yeah. basketball, it's gonna happen. And with Bryce leading things and Brian there, like it's 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 gonna happen. And it's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah. Watching. Yeah. Hundred percent. Hey Brian, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. We'll catch up again down the road. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Check out all the other episodes. We'll see you next time.